Welcome to My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 426. This program is a merit of Baruch Binyamin ben Menucha Lena and Miriam Baschai Sara Altes, Yukusil ben Leir Rochel and Rochel Basliba Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Todes ben Miriam and Sara Bas Rochel Altes. We are at the beginning of the month of Kislev, known as Chodesh HaGeula in Hasidic lexicon. Chodesh HaGeula, firstly, of course, the end of the month, Hanukkah is the Geula from the darkness that existed then to light. But in the Hasidic calendar, we have Yutas Kislev, Chaga Geula, the Rosh Hashanah of Hasidus, the 19th of Kislev. We have before that the 9th and 10th of Kislev, which is the Mittler Rebbe's respectively birthday and Yartzeit, which we'll speak about. Yud Kislev was his Geula, also Geula, Chaga Geula. We have between that, Yud Dalet Kislev is the anniversary of the Rebbe and the Rebbe's in the year Tafresh Peites. And Rosh Chedesh Kislev, which we discussed last week, is the day when the Rebbe chose to go home after he had his heart attack and was stayed in 770, <coughs> excuse me, for a while. Then he finally went home. So it's a month of Geula. Geula in simple English means redemption. Redemption from what? From everything that constrains us, that limits us, that traps us. It could be small things, it could be big things. So Geula generally is the state of a healthy state of every human being is when they find redemption. They find, the word redemption actually is not a perfect word. It's a literal translation. But it means finding resolution, finding clarity, finding coming to a point of alignment. So Golis, the antithesis of Gula, would be disalignment. When things are not aligned properly, when there's dissonance, when there's inconsistency, a lack of synchronicity. And Gula, when things are aligned. So we say Gula, mitis vashlema, that will be the whole, all the cosmos, both on a cosmic level, on a microcosmic level, on a personal level, everything will be aligned with its purpose. Think of a machine that's working f- smoothly and fluidly, exactly as aligned to the purpose that the engineer created it for. In this case, we're talking about life itself. So we're in a month of Gula where we have that energy, and especially from the, from the world of Chassidus, where Chassidus introduces the primis ha the inner, the soul of Teirah. So Teirah has a body and a soul. There's the mechanics, there's what to do, and there's the inner spirit, the passion, the inner inwardness connected to it, the joy that comes not just by doing things by rote, but in a way of doing it with full fervor and, and, and uh, fire and, and, and passion and excitement. So that's a general overview of the month of Geula. Specifically, this coming Shabbos will be Shabbos Pasha Vayetze. We'll talk about that shortly. It's also Tes Kislev. Let's start with Tes Kislev. Tes Kislev, the ninth of Kislev, is both the birthday and the yard site of the Mitla Rebbe, the second Chabad Rebbe. So he was born in the year Tov Kuf Lamed Dalad, which is the equivalent of uh, 5534 or 1773. And he passed away 54 years later in the year Tov Kuf Peches, corresponding to 1827. So he lived a relatively short life, 54 years. But in those 54 years, he contributed a tremendous amount to Chassidus Chabad. Chabad is Chochmah Bin Adas, 
So it's known that the Alter Rebbe was Chochmah. Chochmah was the kernel, the seed, the spark, the conception, conceiving of, of Chassidus Chabad, based, of course, on the Magid, his teacher, and the, and the Baal Shem Tov, which is, of course, based on their teachers all the way back to Moshe Rabbeinu. The Mitla Rebbe elaborated on, on it, recalled the Chavis Hanar of Bina, the expansive river. If Chochmah is like the, the, the drop that comes from the from the from the Mayonis, from the Mayon, which is the spring of water, so Bina expands on it. Chachm is the spark of the idea. Now the Alter Rebbe didn't just give us sparks; gave us hundreds, if not thousands, of pages, starting with Tanya and all the discourses. But relatively speaking, the Mitle Rebbe took one page from the Alter Rebbe became ten pages by the Mitle Rebbe. Sometimes ten pages, sometimes three pages, explaining it in depth and in detail, which of course created the, a corpus of work, works and writings that the Mitle Rebbe left us that developed Chassidus and, of course, the generations afterwards would develop it further. Now, what is the contribution, contribution of that? Well, the Mitle Rebbe additionally was also a publisher. The Alter Rebbe did publish in his lifetime Tanya, Hilchas Tamatera, part of Shulchan Aruch. But the Mitle Rebbe, set out to publish, and many of his books were published in his time with names, and he composed them to be published. The Maimorim, the, the large amount of, this, of the discourses delivered by the Alter Rebbe were written by his students and were published afterwards. Tere'e, the were published later, time of the Semach Tzedek. But the Mitle Rebbe was also a publisher. When I say publisher, I mean that not in a technical word, that he was involved in actually publishing his works, whether it's Imre Bina, Shari Eira, Shari Shuvah, just listing a few of the many. And as you'll see also from the name Shari, you have the name Imre Bine, the word Bine, and Shari, Shar, Shar Tshuva, Shar, Shar Tatfila. Shar is also connected to Bine because there's 50 gates. Nun Shari Bine, Chamishim Shari Bine. So you can see it also indicated in the very names of his books which again, Bina is the expansion. So if Chochme is like the conception of an idea, Bina develops it, fleshes it out. That's exactly what the Mitle Rebbe did. So the Yufutsa Maynasech Achusa, where the Baal Shem Tov heard from Mashiach, when will you come, when will Mashiach come? When your wellsprings will spread outward by the Mitle Rebbe, that became a very strong reality. He actually spread them in a very broad and expansive way. That was the unique thing with the Mitle Rebbe. The Samach Sadiq said about his father-in-law, the Mitle Rebbe, was his father-in-law and his uncle. He said that if he would cut his finger instead of blood, chsidus would come pouring out. He was cool chsidus. I can testify to a statement made in some of the talks of the Rabbeim where they write that the Mitle Rebbe, when he would write chsidus, he would write so, qui- so quickly that when he came to the bottom of the page, he sometimes went over the page onto the table. And someone had to come and, and give him the next, the next blettle, the next um, daf in order for him to write. So actually working in the Rebbe's library for a time and seeing these manuscripts, I, he could actually see bottom pages, half on the page and half was on the table. We don't have the table, but you literally can see that. That was his flow, the flow of chassidus that came from him, which teaches us so many things in our own personal lives that it's one thing is to learn Torah, another is to learn it in Beshufi, 
which means a, 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 a incessant flow, like a mayanam is gabar. You see that in the Mitlareb, learning with Maimorim is like literally going into a river, into an ocean, which is almost endless. Goes and he goes back and then he explains it and then he says everything he said now, there's another way to look at it. All that did not, does not exist really in the Altareb is my mom. The Altareb is much more concise, says the points, asks questions and answers, explains. Mitlareb, you could see that type of, uh, you could say if the Altareb is Mishnah, Mitlareb like Gemara. Even though I haven't seen that example, but it just as a, just an example to, to explain some of the context of it. So when you're in Chassidus, when you're involved in it, you immerse, you immerse yourself, and like, you know, putting, you're going into, an, going into a bath, into an ocean, into a river, what happens? You, put, you go all the way into it, like into a mikveh, and you're completely submerged, where instead of you learning it, it's consuming you. So there's an expression, it, you, can consu- you can understand an idea, or an idea can take you, and completely encompass you in its uh, embrace. And that's what you feel when you learn the Mitla Rebbe's Chassidus. So the lesson is, Chassidus, of course, teaches us about the very divine, the nature of God, Kav Yochel, so to speak, quote-unquote, the nature of God, the personality, and our relationship. So when you submerge yourself, like listening to a song where you're completely surrounded by the song, it's not just you're listening to the song, you're completely surrounded and lifted up by it, that's the experience, and that's something we should aspire to. It's very refreshing very invigorating to have that type of experience. Addition, another thing to point out, interestingly, from all the Rabbeim, the Mitle Rebbe, actually fulfilled what the Gemara says, Mamalet Sadikim, the Yem Liyem, that the Sadikim, like Moshe Rabbeinu, passed away the same day he was born. The Mitle Rebbe passed away on the same day he was born, the 9th of Kislev. What does that signify? Because by a tzaddik, by a righteous person, there's a certain complete cycle. So the Rebbe explains, even though every tzaddik has that, but you don't always see it physically. So a tzaddik who passes away, literally on the day, it's like the end of the year, so he completed his avoid. Now why dafka the mitla Rebbe? I don't think I've ever seen the explanation. But you could say, the mitla Rebbe being the bina of chassidus, so there's a certain complete picture that he provided. Obviously, Chassidus continued to develop by the Tzemach Tzedek and the Rabbeim that came afterwards. But being Chochmah and Bina have this so-called Trey and the Passion, the two friends that are inseparable. When you have Chochmah and Bina, you have the complete picture. Then comes Das, where the Tzemach Tzedek contributed, and the other Rabbeim. But there's a certain completeness in it, and that perhaps is one of the reasons. Um, so... That, but it also teaches us the idea of the idea of something complete, that in, in Kedusha, in holiness, everything is complete. For example, in the Beis HaMikdash, in the Mishkan, there was no excess. You know, like usually you build something, you have, excess of, you have extra wood, you have extra gold, extra silver. Everything was used to the fullest. And the space was also that way. There was no extra space. Because in Gedusha, there's nothing extra. Like you say, nothing more than necessary and nothing less than necessary. It's a perfect, complete picture. So it also teaches us about what he spoke before about Geula and alignment, the month of Geula. The Mitle Rebbe is both his Geula and his birthday and Yotzeit are in Kislev. Geula is total alignment when everything is like a complete circle. Everything is finished. In that level, obviously. 
not finished. The Mitla Rebbe afterwards came out the, the Rabbeim, and we still have Mashiach to a full picture of the Gula Mitzvah Vashlemet that hasn't yet manifested. But in his world, what he was able to accomplish was a certain completeness, which also teaches us about finishing things. I could take this personal lesson. Many times you start projects, and you have a project here, it's 90% finished, 80% finished. So one of the lessons is to complete things. Complete things and then move to the next certain mile of shlemus, the quality of shlemus of complete cycles. And many more things that we can learn, but this will suffice for now. Let's move over to Parsha Vayetze, which this week is Shabbos Parsha Vayetze. And Teskislev is on Shabbos Parsha Vayetze this year. So the Rebbe explains in Tov Shemem Zayin the connection between Vayetze and the Mitla Rebbe, Bina, because the Posuk says, Vayetze Yaakov me Be'er Sheva, Vayela Charona. Yaakov left Be'er Sheva, the home where his parents lived, the fountain of seven, Vayelach, and he went Charona towards Choron. And these are two very antithetical realities. Be'er Sheva, the fountain of seven, as Chassidus explains, the seven Midas of Atzilus, is the holy promised land. The holy land. Charona means charein, means wrath, anger, the wrath of God, the place where Lovan, the deceptive, conniving Lovan lived. And Dafka there is where God wanted Yaakov to build his home, build his family. Which is, of course, the story, as the Erech Chaim says, right in the beginning commentary, right in the beginning of the chapter, this is the story of each one of us. Where a soul leaves Be'er Sheva, heaven, Ganeden, paradise, the spiritual realms to come into a hostile world, a dark world, and here to build. That's why Yaakov was concerned and afraid. Until Hashem promised him, I will go with you. And not only will you succeed, but you'll build a family and that family will flourish and will blossom and spread to the east and to the west and to the north and to the south. Which indeed is what happened. Because the neshama comes down below, on one hand there's a certain element of pain. That's why the soul has to be compelled to told you must go down to this world. But then we realize that the neshama realizes that this is the world where you can become far greater than the higher worlds, where there's no resistance and there's no challenge. So it's the story of each one of our lives. The Rebbe explains in that Sikha Tov Shemem Zayin that I quoted, that I mentioned before, that that's the Yitziah from Chochmah to Bina. In a subtle form, Chochmah is also, it's within, Chochmah is experiencing the higher reality of godliness, as the Alter Rebbe says in the gloss in chapter 35 in Tanya that he heard from his teacher, Shemati Memore, that Chochmah is the place that manifests that God is the only God and there's nothing else that's real, the only reality, nothing else. That's Chochmah. The challenge is, can you bring it into a world of Bina where there isn't that resonating clarity, the Riyya, the clarity, the vision, the, 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 the clarity that you can envision like sight in Chochmah? And that's what Bina does. Vayetze Yaakov, Yud, Ekev. Yud is Chochmah, and Ekev is going into the heel, like Choram. So the neshama, the chacham, is going into bina. And from bina, it expands into the midas, emotions. And from there to malchus, and from there to biyah, from atzilus and to bri, as he explains in that, 
Very powerful sikh, worthwhile reading and learning this week of the week of Vayetze and the week of Teskislav. So what you have from this is the story of our lives. Starting from a pure place, entering the pure, in a place that's not so pure, and creating what? Gu'ula there. That's the point. To go into a world that's not aligned, that's chaotic, that's fragmented, and bring harmony, bring unity, bring light into that darkness, as Yaakov did. And that's why the story of Vivayitse is our story. All the details of the chapter, all about that, that concept. So with that, let's address a few questions that came in around Pasha Vayetze. What is the significance of Yaakov's dream of the ladder and what practical advice, uh, practical advice does it give us in our daily lives? So we read right at the beginning of the chapter, after Yaakov leaves Be'er Sheva and goes, into, goes toward Choron, that he, has, he falls asleep and has a dream, and behold, here's a ladder that's standing on the ground, and the top of the ladder is reaching into heaven. He sees the Malachim, Elim, Vyerdim, And that's when God comes to him and tells him, I will be there with you. What is the significance of this ladder? A famous ladder. So the Rambam brings, and this is from Midrashim, that the ladder had four rungs. And this represents Sulamat Filath, the ladder of prayer. The purpose of existence, as I said, is to bring the divine into a place that's dark. Or the famous expression is, God desired to have a home where? Not in the heavens. Not in the higher worlds. Not in the infinite. But this finite mortal, the lowest of worlds. Which is the story from Be'er Sheva to Charan. The question is how? How do you bridge these two worlds? Ladder is a bridge. Basic bridge. A bridge between heaven and earth. Between earth and heaven. But the ladder works both ways. We climb and also we come down. So first is the climbing, the Aveda that we start davening. We pray with our initiative and we're reaching up. We're reaching up to heaven. What heaven means here, that's not just physical looking up to the sky. It means the spiritual, to the sublime, from matter to spirit. And the four rungs are the four parts of davening. You explain it usually in two different ways. One is the morning prayers. Psukha de Zimra. Birchas Krishma and Krishma. It's one way. Sometimes so it's four rungs. It's a journey. It's a journey from where? From Arza, from earth. That's our job, is to create a bridge, an interface. Exodus explains, they do it from the bottom up through davening. From the top down through Teirah. Teda was given from heaven. God gives us the Teda. But Teda is also meant to come down to this world and offer us a blueprint, an operator's manual, life's operator's manual, how to transform this world. That's the significance of the latter. What practical advice is to us? There are many lessons. First of all, we all have to build ladders. Talk about Chassidus. 
So the Friedrich Rebbe brings, I believe, from maybe from the previous Rabbi and before him, the expression, famous expression, that the Baal Shem Tov taught how every person, how every Jew can serve God. Baal Shem Tov taught that every Jew can serve God, I should say. And the Alter Rebbe taught how everyone can serve God. And the example is given of a ladder. The Baal Shem Tov provided a ladder and the Alter Rebbe taught us how to climb the ladder. Both are necessary. Without a ladder you can't climb. But then you need to know how to climb. So they complement each other. That's what Chassidus does. Now, Teirah in general is the latter, Teirah, Tefillah, that, that bridges the two, but more specifically, in Teirah itself, teaching that even when we're in this material world, within you is beating an eternal soul, a piece of the divine. And yes, you have a struggle, there is a battle. Like Yaakov had to battle with Lovan. But you have all the power to prevail. The whole theme of Tanya. And how do you prevail? By feeding that soul through learning, through davening, through mitzvahs. Doing it all with the proper intention, kavona, and the soul of it, the passion. And with that, you create from this material world, you create a ladder to climb upwards, and to bridge the two realities. That's the whole story of the chapter of, of the Parsha Vayetze, and also specifically in the story of the, of the latter. Okay, next question. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, it's taught that Yaakov had to suffer the indignity of doing hard work for Lovin for 14 years as a punishment for the 14 years he spent in the yeshiva of Shem and Ever. But that doesn't make sense. Why would anyone be punished for studying in yeshiva? Hashem wants us to learn Torah so Yaakov did the right thing by going to yeshiva. If anything, we should say that being able to spend 14 years in yeshiva was a reward for Yaakov putting up with Lovin for 14 years. Or rather, the 14 years in yeshiva gave him the strength to deal with Lovin and all the challenges caused by Lovin. So there's different discussion on this all 14 years because it's based on the fact there's a discrepancy in the years of Yaakov so the Medrashim and the commentaries explain that the only way to deal with that discrepancy, because if you don't re- know that, when Yaakov leaves Yitzchak and Rivka at the end of Parsha Teldis, doesn't indicate in the Parsha anywhere that there were any years. It seems that it took a little while to travel to Charm, but not 14 years. And then we know the age where Yaakov was when he marries, and so on, the rest of his chronology. So to reconcile for those 14 years, it's told that he went into Ganeid. Sometimes it says actually that in Ganeid the years weren't even added. So it's not about the years, because there it was like he was Lamaila Mizmat. That's what it also says in Svarim. The Rebbe brings the different commentaries on this in Lukutta Sikhis Chilik Hay, Volume 5, looking by Yetze and the Sophis. In Tovshin Chafei, after the Rebbetzin Khan is passing, the Rebbe spoke every week, he spoke every Shabbos then, but he also edited the Sichas, and Vayetze, Tov Shechafei, he discusses this whole piece. But regardless, the issue, I don't recall seeing that it says a punishment. I do recall it says that the question is, if he went 14 years, one second here, he was sent on a Shlichus to go to Haran, build a family, 
So why, is he, why did he get uh, d- d- sidetracked and went 14 years? It's a beautiful thing to learn in yeshiva. And it's true, those 14 years gave him koyach. But regardless how you explain it, the bottom line is, the 14 years of his doing work, yes, was you can call it a punishment, but it was also a necessity. This was the birur of going to this darkness. It's like the hard labor when a soul comes down to this world, like I described earlier. So there's hard work. You don't just gain, you don't just, you don't just come to, you don't just make your gains overnight. So the 14 years represent seven years for Rachel and the seven, seven years he thought was for Rachel. And then another seven years. It's all part of the process of the hard work we do in this material world in order to build our family. In order to build the Shvatim, Shifte Yutke, in order to bring God into this world. So, though, on one hand, you can call it that it's a, uh, it's just like we learn later, that uh, because Yaakov did not, did not do certain things in honoring his parents, so that's why Yosef was taken from him. Or other expressions similar. So, in general, the word punishment is not the right word, it's more cause and effect, and it's all part of a deeper plan. So that's what I wanted to really qualify. It's all part of a deeper plan. So his going to yeshiva, of course, empowered him. And that's why he was able to achieve what he achieved. But at the same time, there's also the 14 years of the hard work that he needed to do to build this family. I'm sure there's more on this topic when you look into the commentary, especially in the Maimonim of Chassidus. But this is just a, a, the overview. Who were Bila and Zilpa? Were they Jewish? If they weren't, it would mean that some of the tribes weren't Jewish if their mothers were non-Jewish. Well, you can ask the same question about uh, Leah and Rachel. Leah and Rachel, what made anyone Jewish then? So this is a discussion in Svarim and Sifrei Halacha, there's a famous sefer called Derech Mitzvah and Atzamech Tzadik, a Nigla sefer. Prashas Drachim, it's called, another name for it. The Rebbe brings it about whether the Ovis and the Imois were considered Jewish. Remember, the concept of a Jew didn't happen until Matan Tera. That's why the Jewish people had to go through a conversion. All of them. Mikveh, Kabbalah's Mitzvahs, Atofah's Dambris. Because technically speaking, the concept of Jew didn't exist. But on the other hand, the concept of a non-Jew also didn't exist. What I mean by that is that distinction didn't exist. It was more by choice. Avram Avinu chose the path of God, and in effect became the first Jew in that sense. But halachically speaking, the Jews became when they actually received the Torah at Har Sinai. So in that sense, all the Ovis animals, and of course their servants, which includes Bila and Zilpah, were not technically Jewish. But they were in spirit, they were Jewish. So if, if Rivka, uh, if, Rachel, if Leah and Rachel embraced the Judaism, or the Jewish belief system of their family, now, even though it was Lavan, but then they married Yaakov. And remember, they came from a place just like Sarah and Avram, Yitzchak and Rivka. So they too embraced that path. So for all practical purposes, that was, called, that was what was called Jewish then. And therefore their servants also embraced it. Even after Matan Teda, when you have a servant, not necessarily the servant becomes Jewish, but a servant lives in a home of Jewish home, there's certain, you're going to embrace certain principles. But here it's more than that because they were, this, they were on that level. So when Leah and then Rachel gave their servants 
to Yaakov, and they gave birth to some of the Shvatim, they were in the equal status. And bottom line is they're all the Shvatim of, we call them all the Shvatim, and we don't make these distinctions. There are distinctions between them, but there's also a distinction between Yehuda and Levi, the Kehanim and Levim, but that's because every Shevet has its particular path. So that's the bottom line. Matter of fact, when you look into Svarim, when it talks about, for example, Barzel, so it says Barzel is a Rosh Tevis, for Bila Rochel, Zilpoleya. Sometimes they're, they're, they're called the, 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 they're part of the Rochel, the Leia Rochel structure. And as such, they are mothers of our people, with Yaakov, who is the father of all of us. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, why did Rachel steal her father's idols? According to Rashi, who quotes Bereshit Rabbah 74.5, she did it to wean Lovan away from idol worship. The Torah only tells us stories if there is a lesson for us in our daily lives. What's the lesson here? Should we emulate our mother Rachel and steal our neighbor's idols to help wean them away from idolatry? Should we walk into churches and go berserk with hammers and mallets and smash all the big statues of Yoshka until they crumble into piles of sand in order to help our neighbors be weaned away from idolatry. I always feel uh, somewhat touched by the tone of some of the letters that come in. I guess they're also anonymous, so it gives people a little latitude. But the tone is, is, uh, is interesting, informal. And as I said... I, it, that's good. That's the purpose of this program, is to invite questions and let me use this opportunity. If you're here for the first time or you've been here before, please take full advantage. We have a forum at chassidusapply.com where you can submit any question. Nothing's taboo. Nothing's off limits. It's completely anonymous. And this has really been the engine and the fuel of this program from its inception nine, over nine years ago. We're now already in episode 426. There's also a full array of different Hasidic resources there, explanations, different classes. I give a daily IM based class, which you're welcome to participate and join every morning, as well as the archives of all these classes. So check it out at chassidusapply.com. Okay, so let's address this question. Well, yes, the obvious lesson is exactly that. Remember, Avraham Avinu did the same thing. He actually smashed the idols. You're talking about stealing the idols. But there's also smashing the idols. Idols represent the pagan world of a world embracing a false god. Beginning with embracing and worshipping yourself. As the Rambam explains, in the beginning of the laws of idolatry, Hilchas Avedizara, Mishnah Teda, beautiful explanation. How did people suddenly turn to idolatry? doesn't even make sense. Worshipping a stone, a tree, man-made objects, stars. So he explains because they were looking to find a relationship with God. God is invisible. So they looked for something that represents God. Oh, God's handiwork. The stars in heaven. And initially they understood the stars were God's painting. That was God's art. God is in Biyad like an axe in the hands of a woodchopper. doesn't have any independence. But then as time passed, the stars are also quite distant. 
So they started creating shrines down on earth that represent different stars. And slowly, that developed into a whole uh, industry. You have shrines. So then you have priests, people, the only way to access it. You have to enter through me, and I charge some money. I'm not saying, (laughs) I'm saying those. So slowly, a whole industry was built. And bottom line, they forgot about the woodchopper in the example of Chesiv, Gazim B'yad HaChesiv. became an end in itself. And then once you start worshipping, instead of recognizing that God created you in God's image, you're creating a God in your image, that undermines the very essence of what God means. So the world became pagan. Other Machav were very aware of God, but they also wandered a bit. It's not called Avedazara. But they made their own choice. They became independent consciousness, as is explained. And then it only decelerated generation, generation. Avram Avinu returns, as the Ramam continues, Esa Nagodl, this great force, this great power. And he brought light, he began, the world began to illuminate again, as the Medrash says. His Chilohoyer started to radiate, introducing. So really, it's a life, the battle of life, you talk about Choran, versus Be'er Sheva, is the battle between the animal soul, the divine soul, the battle between materialism, paganism, worshipping matter. It could take on the shape of worshipping money. Idols doesn't always mean a physical object. It could be, well, a money is a physical, I mean to say a golden calf. could be gold as money. You could worship power, influence, control. There are many things people worship. It could be addictions. You worship substances, certain behaviors. That becomes, you become their slave. Slave of these behaviors or substances. Alcohol, drugs, and other different addictions. It's all instead of God. So the work is to wake us up, as Avram Avinu did, as Sarah did, and as the generations followed. So Rachel was behaving, Rachel was behaving in the same spirit. So what do we learn from this? That yes, we are at battle with the idols, but this doesn't mean we have to go into anywhere and, ch- and destroy. There are different ways of inspiring. Inspiring through bringing more light, education, inspiration. That's the lesson. The specifics of stealing these idols, well, Rachel was, at the end of the day, the daughter of Lavan, so she felt she had that ability to do that. Lavan was incensed by it, but the bottom line is, the message not the actual stealing or the shattering, it's contending with it. It's protesting. But done, we have to always do it in a way that's going to work. If someone goes down, God forbid, starts becoming violent, it's not exactly going to work. Not even getting whether it's legal or illegal. The way is inspiration. That's what we've been. Be a light unto nations. By teaching, by inspiring, by bringing light, by being ambassador of light. That's the lesson that we learned from it. Okay. With that, let's go now to some follow-up, previous parshas, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll make progress here with also some past questions that I really want to address. Okay. So last week's parsha was a story a lot about Rivka, the parsha of, um, actually two parshas back, Chayesara, where Yitzchak meets Rivka. But the story of Rivka continues in last week's Pasha too, that we read yesterday. So someone writes, is it possible that Rashi was mistaken when he calculated Rivka's 
age. A three-year-old working as a well seems odd. Also, Eliezer looking at a three-year-old and saying that she would make a great wife for a 37-year-old Yitzchak doesn't seem normal. A three-year-old understanding of what is happening Understanding what is happening, accepting a marriage proposal through Eliezer seems unlikely. Lastly, what are we to make of Rashi's statement? This makes Yitzchak's 37 years old, and at the time Rivka was born, this makes Yitzchak 37 years old, and at the time Rivka was born. He waited for her until she would be fit for marital relations three years, and then married her. In Rashi's time, was three-year-old the age of consent? Is it the age of consent in Alocha? How are we supposed to see this as anything other than well, I don't want to use the next expression, but essentially take advantage of a child. Okay. Well, I can imagine you're not the first person to ask this question. Commentaries talk about it. Some say that, yes, um, things were different in that age, in that uh, period in time, where a three-year-old developed into a maturity that is beyond what we would call a three-year-old today. Some say that actually... Some interpret it in Rashi and some disagree with Rashi. That three-year-olds, when they, when they made the shidduch, but it was older when they actually began to uh, have relations. Um, and the fact that Eliezer was able to recognize, yeah, I mean, we're talking about very special people. Uh, Yitzchak was also able to recognize when he brought it to the tent and saw that the same features that his mother Sarah had, the three things, the ne'er dolok met of Shabbos, letter Shabbos, the candle that burned from week to week the blessing in her dough, the, the on and on the oil, the cloud on the, on, the, on the tent. So you see features you can see. Butzim, butzim, akati is an expression of the Gemara. You can see even in the youngest age, you can begin to see the features that will come later. So this is discussed by, by a number of people and so on. In addition, to even su- suggest something inappropriate is, is inappropriate. You're dealing with high-level tzaddikim, or most refined of, of the refined. And um, before Matan Teda, the question of Allah is also the issue whether they all followed all the halachas. Remember, there's the whole discussion, how could Yaakov marry two sisters? That's not allowed after Matan Teda. The Rebbe has entire sikhas in it in volume five. So there's Prutra Shamikra, the literal, there's halacha in it. But at the end of the day, they, the Ovis Taka did not have all the laws that are applicable after Matan Teda. It was before Matan Teda. The question of the spirit of the halacha. So that's all discussed in these sikhs. The same is, I believe, addresses also the issue of the, her being three years old. The Rebbe does make it clear in Chelik uh, Tazvov, volume 15, Lukut Sikhs, that she, when she was three, she was not married yet. Uh, he brings from Teisvis from different places. And that's why it brings that. That's why girls, even before marriage, should light candles. This one of the proofs was from Rivka. Regardless, this is discussed at length, and I would just sum up by saying that times were different then. If indeed, at three years old, she was capable of being a wife, a woman. Um, and regardless, as I said, there are commentaries that explain it in different fashions and. Uh, some say that they were much older when she actually began to be, when they were actually married. If anybody has one more details, I believe I once saw a, uh, an essay on this topic in more detail. If you send me an email at chsidasupply.com, I'd be happy to share more in depth. This program, I try to stay away from getting into all the intricate opinions, but sometimes that is necessary as well, and I'm happy to share that. Okay.
Another follow-up was about nose rings. I see that captures people's imagination. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, inimitable prince of the virtual multiverse, <laughs> greetings and blessings. Hashem should continue to give you strength in all you do in an ever-increasing measure. Regarding nose rings, for what it's worth, teenage girls wearing stud nose rings seems fairly common among the from settler Haredi, Haredi Dati Lu'umi girls here in Israel. My daughter, who is about to start serving the army, has one, has one, as do many of her friends from the all-girls from high school she attended. True, it's a different path from Beis Yaakov and was not a Lubavitch program, but from nonetheless. Okay. Well, so let's include that into the, on the record, into the record of this discussion of the last two weeks talking about nose rings. And I don't, I don't have much to add. Um, Last week we also spoke about the Akedah, the offering, the binding of Yitzchak. So I explained it more, at least, more, or, less, more or less at length. So here, a Balabatisha answer regarding the Akedah. Well, that's the title. A Balabatisha answer regarding the Akedah. Hi, Rabbi Jacobs. Shalom of Racham. I thought of an addition to your response about why Avram didn't share with Sarah that he was going to the Akedah with Yitzchak. Men and women are different in nature, as our fathers and mothers. In this case, as Hashem had called on Avram to do the Akedah with Yitzchak, and being a father, it was in his spiritual and physical DNA to do exactly that. A mother, however, has a different bond with her child and couldn't realistically be asked to participate in the Akedah even as a Markova, as a chariot. Okay, that's an additional point. I think it does complement what I discussed. If you want... To understand the context, please just go back to last week's program. And I should add, all the programs are time-stamped. So when you go to them on our site, chassidusapplied.com, or on YouTube, time-stamp means that when you look at the description, the sub, it's broken down by subject, and you can just click on a link, and it takes you straight there. So you don't have to listen to the whole thing, double speed or triple speed or quadruple, quadruple speed. But you can actually go to the section that this topic is discussed. So thank you for that. Okay, a few different uh, loose questions that came in. Let me cover a few of them. Hello, Rabbi Jacobson. In honor of Hakel, I have taken a new resolution to learn one chapter of Rambam a day in addition to the three chapters I learn every day. Oh, interesting. That I've not heard before. By starting to also learn one chapter a day, I am joining in with a large segment of people who learn the one chapter a day. Do you think this is a worthy resolution? Has the Rebbe ever encouraged a people who learn both tracks to learn who learn both tracks? Lastly, would you encourage more people to follow in this way? Well, what can I tell you? I commend you. Many people have difficulty learning three chapters, period. Even one chapter. Here you're learning every day four chapters. The Rebbe never indicated that's the way. He actually gave this alternative. Remember, you accomplish the same job. If you're learning three chapters, you actually do it in one year. You finish the whole Rambam. You learn one chapter, you finish every three years approximately. So there's no reason to do it. I mean, it's like learning Tehri. A person can learn Gemara, can learn two different pages in Gemara every day. More than two pages. 
Um, so I commend you, but I would not say that it's something that people have to pursue doing. It's a matter of case by case. People have to make the choice. I never heard it quite this way. To fulfill the takon of the, of the Rebbe, meaning the Rebbe is instituting this custom, it's either three chapters, one chapter, or Sefer HaMitzvahs. But, um, but again, this is an optional thing. Uh, first time I heard someone doing that, and kol kavot, <laughs> God bless you. What shall I say? Another question, unrelated, paintings of patriarchs. Are there any authentic surviving paintings of the patriarchs or Moshe Rabbeinu so we can know what they looked like? Well, I've never seen. I don't believe there are. I'm sure even if someone came up with a painting, people would question and challenge, how do we know? How do we verify that? Was it passed on generation to generation? And in general, Jews didn't really focus so much. Much more music was passed on than, than, than images for various reasons, not because of Tselem, uh, different reasons concerning uh, the laws around p- painting a picture or sculpture and so on. So uh, you have things that uh, Michelangelo and others painted. I don't know how accurate it is. I don't know what it's based on. And I can't, we can't uh, corroborate and say that's a painting of the patriarchs. There is a controversial uh, commentary uh, based on the Tferis Yisrael, that recites it at the end of Kedushin in Mishnayis, that Moshe, that there was this, a whole story with a painting of Moshe Rabbeinu, and it was like not a positive-looking painting. But the Rebbe rejects that, that uh, so-called uh, story for many different reasons. So even though there is such a story, but also that doesn't mean we have the painting or the picture. So that's what I know about the topic. If anybody has more information on this, please, by all means. Most important is to focus that our focus is on their personality, on their virtues, Avram's kindness, Yitzchak's awe, Yaakov's compassion, and balance. Their personality, as the Torah describes. The fact that we don't have a picture means that you don't need a picture. The key is to focus not on the external, but on who they stood for. And Mose Yegi Yodai, Mose Yegi Maisei, when will my actions? Be similar. Will I reach? So it's about emulating them and trying to incorporate their personalities and their virtues in our lives. Their actions are assigned to us and they teach us. Okay. Okay, this is a topic a few weeks ago I spoke about anti-Semitism and the latest events around that. So someone follows up with a double Point, a double point in this in this comment. Recently, there have been there, there there has been controversy where some black singers have made anti-Semitic statements while also claiming they are real Jews. It's laughable that some people claim they are Jews and then go ahead and insult the Jews. But one point they made kind of does make sense. Weren't the original Jews Jews dark-skinned? It makes sense geographically because darker-skinned people came from the Middle East. But if that's the case, why are the majority of today Jew, today's Jews white-skinned and very few Orthodox Jewish pe- black people? For that matter, non-Orthodox as well. When I say non-Orthodox, you mean probably halachic Jews. I mean, if someone, someone converted halachic leap. But you mean to say, not born Jew, not born black Jews, even though there are those that claim and so on. Just qualify. Are there many white Jews because somewhere along the line our European ancestors were, con- were converts? Does that make us less Jewish than the original Jews led by Moses out of Egypt? 
Okay, a few points here, and this has been discussed by different scholars. It is true that if you go purely by the region, that the dark, that Middle Eastern people are darker in skin, like some will say the Yemenites are the closest to original Jews look like. Talk about Abraham and their imagery. It came in from the Middle East, most likely were darker skinned. We don't know how dark. On the other hand, for example, Shlema Melech, we say Shcherani, he had a dark-skinned wife, which would indicate that he himself was not dark-skinned, or his other wives were not. So this could also be difference in generations. But at the same time, as people migrated, you could also make the argument that as they migrated to Europe, or more Caucasian-colored countries, they also assumed some of those personality types, just like people who may have migrated to China and they assume certain features in the face that a Chinese person has. So you could say that. Secondly, you can add, as you said, conversion. So even though one convert, but one convert can produce a whole, line, a whole line of family. And finally, unfortunately, there was also rape. And if it's a Jewish mother, she may have given birth to children that were based on the, this illicit and illegitimate father. Crime, I would even say. I even shudder repeating those words. But nevertheless, those would be children that would have different, perhaps different, um, you know, more white color. That's why some people explain blonde, blue-eyed, which is not really Middle Eastern features. And finally, there is the concept of intermarriage. Where women, a Jewish woman would marry a non-Jewish person and have children. So all these elements, if you combine them, and especially if certain families really multiplied, exponentially, you can explain a lot of different things. I would like to believe it all came in a pure way, like conversion, or due to migration, or due to the changes that happened. But as I said, different studies have been made on this topic. Now, as far as pure Judaism goes, we have a Torah that tells us, either born to a Jewish mother or halachically converted. Someone that's halachically converted makes no difference what their skin color is. Nowhere in halacha does it talk about a skin color as being a reason not to convert someone. There are some, commu- some communities and some, some uh, tribes that the Torah says do not accept converts from them for different reasons. So that doesn't at all. If it's halachic, it's halachic. If a white person converts not halachically, they're not Jewish. And a black person converts halachically, they're Jewish. So I just want to make that very clear. Okay. What else can I add to this? Um, look, we all know that lineage is a key thing. When two people marry, the rabbis will want to know what their lineage is. And there are ways to prove it, whether it's parents who have a ksuba or people who knew them. There are situations, unfortunately, where people either never converted or converted not halachically, and that create, puts into question certain things. But we have, thank God, good rabbis who look into these and try to clarify, and some people need to go through another conversion to assure, to make sure. This is one of the reasons that some argued that the Ethiopians, even though they claim to be Jewish, and they may say they, maybe they were, but over the years may have assimilated and different things, and you don't know what happened. So just to be 100% sure, some said, go through a conversion. It was not meant to be demeaning. It was meant actually, because on a suffolk, on a doubt, just go through a conversion, that way you have no more doubts. 
And doubts can be of many different sorts. If people didn't follow exact laws, you could end up having a brother and sister um, marrying, God forbid, and so on. So a halacha conversion would solve all these issues. There's much more to be said on the topic. The key thing, there is no, from a Torah point of view, there's no concept of discrimination, God forbid. Every human being was created by God. And there's a process of how one converts or how one is defined as Jewish. And that's what has to be said. As far as features go, you have Jews today of different colors and stripes and cultures. And it's all beautiful as long as it goes by the guidelines of Torah. We don't judge things by the color of the skin. Yes, and going back again, is it likely that originated in the Middle East that was a certain color? Yes. So be it. But some argue that all people came from that area and still we find the diversity that exists today in the different populations and citizens of the world. Okay. Let's cover now I have a whole section of many questions that came out about davening, about prayers. I really feel I want to address it because I just see something that's on people's minds, especially over Tishrei, and we're already in the month of Kislev. There were many questions regarding prayers, but some of them are pretty timeless and relevant. So I want to begin, maybe we'll dedicate this program a little while, and then the coming programs, a prayer section. I've done this in the past as well. How to pray, the lost art of prayer, different elements of our prayers being answered. So I want to just address it also because I sense, taking the pulse, that many people have this on their mind. I just see it from the flow of questions. I would say almost every week in the hundreds of questions that come in, there's always a nice significant part that are dedicated to the questions around davening prayer, tefillah. So let's do a few of that. Here we go. So in general, this is a category of a few questions. What is kavanah and the proper way to pray? What is intention and the proper way to pray? And the proper way to pray? Is it possible that I don't get my prayers answered because I didn't pray properly? So let's uh, begin. Is it possible that saying the actual words of davening have no effect at all and do not inspire any heavenly influence? But perhaps the idea and reason for davening is to have a sense of community. In other words, for us. It's not for Hashem. That's what the person is asking. When you see the same people in shul every day and you make friends, then one day, when your kitchen sink is clogged, you can turn to the guy sitting next to you and say, hey, Shmuel, you're a plumber. Can you advise me what's the best product I can buy to fix my sink? Perhaps it's being part of a community where the benefits come from. Okay. Well, I don't see a reason why I can't have several benefits. Prayer, let's just make this clear, is a concept in the Torah. God said, I am giving you a gift. It's even a mitzvah, that when you have needs, when you have needs, you should turn to God. So the first and foremost thing is prayer is a relationship with God. From the word bonding, connecting. Later, more prayers were added. Prayers of thanks, of gratitude. But prayer is essentially a Torah thing about a relationship with God. Aveda Shebelev, service of the heart. And also to express yourself, to voice your needs. The fact that prayer, and remember that can be done in the privacy of your home even when there's no one around, not just no plumbers, no one. But for prayer to be more effective, the Chazal tell us there's the concept of a minion, the synergy of a quorum. And there, there is an element of a synergy of different people. First of all, 
that when people join together, the strength of the collective is always stronger than an individual, the unity. Is there a side benefit that it also is, is also community? Yeah, lahakel kihilis. Moshe, one of the decrees of Moshe was to gather together and learn and daven, learn. So that's why you have shiurim, and that creates friendships and camaraderie. More avos Yisrael and achdus Yisrael. But that's not why prayer was given to us. Prayer was given to us, for as I said, there's a relationship with God and communicate and ask for your requests with a complete belief that God will respond to you. As I said, does it have side benefits? Yeah, but remember, the shul was never the center of Jewish life. The home was. The shul has great benefits, like a Beis HaMikdash. Mikdash Ma'at. So that's my brief answer to that. Another person asks, Every day I say all the words of davening, and on Rosh Hashanah through Simchus Torah, I say all the tefillahs with extra emphasis and kavana, intention hoping I will have a good year, but I'm still struggling in many areas. It's as if Hashem hears my prayers and does, does the opposite of what I ask for. I once read that when the Maharal created the Golem, he said a certain prayer, and when it was time to decommission the Golem, he said the same prayer, but he said it backwards. Would that be considered a precedent that when someone wants the opposite, he can say the prayers backwards? <laughs> I'm smiling. A very innovative uh, suggestion. I want the opposite of what my previous year's prayers have accomplished. When, I, when everyone circles the bima seven times in a Shainer Rabbah, should I circle the opposite way? Should I dive in backwards by starting with Elenu and finishing with Hoidu? If everyone faces east, should I face west? What can I do differently for Hashem to give me a good year finally? So, it's interesting ideas. I hope you don't feel that desperate. Let me just, let's just set the record straight. First of all, Hashem answers all prayers. First of all, Hashem listens to all prayers. And He answers all prayers. You may get the answer not the way you've expected. You may get the answer a little later than you expected. But every prayer is answered. The Shalosh says it's like opening doors when you pray. Sometimes more doors need to be opened. Moshe Rabbeinu prayed 515 prayers to go into Israel. He didn't end up going into Israel. But still, his prayers had an effect. It helped his children go, his, his people, the next generations. So don't ever think your prayer is not being heard and not being listened to and will be responded to. And there are different ways that it's responded to. This you need to talk to your mashpia, to a mentor, to a friend, and to see. So just make a statement, nothing. You're here to write about it. That means you're alive. I hope you're healthy. You probably have other blessings in your life. You have a family. I don't know who this is, so I can't say all the blessings. So to say that none of your prayers were fulfilled, it could be certain things, and maybe that needs to be looked at. Maybe God decided those things are not necessary for your life. Maybe you've put focus on it. Maybe it's not that as important. Or, God forbid, maybe your prayers are very vital. And remember, that no one's trying to censor your prayers. Say whatever it is that you want, but God has discretion as well. And I assure you that you have prayers that have been fulfilled. As far as doing things opposite, first of all, the story with the Golem, we're not all of us build Golems and none of us, uh, de, de, uh, what you call, decommission Golems. That's not our job. Um, the way Baral knew how to do it, we don't know how to build a Golem, we don't know how to decommission a Golem. So I wouldn't even go there for lessons. The idea of praying backwards or doing something different to get different, pray with more kavanah. Pray with new kavon, 
do something different in the realm that Allah says. No, we don't daven backwards and we don't do things different. That's not our way of davening. Whether it's halachically permitted, that you have to ask a rabbi where certain things can be said before other things. But I would not shift around the order. I would shift your kavana, your intention. Remember prayer shebelev, aveda shebelev. Your heart. Bring your heart in a new way. Figure out new ways to daven. Same tefillahs, but like playing music. Play it with a new passion, with a new style, with a new intention. That's the way I would suggest it. Okay. And I have no doubt that Hashem will give you a good year and a better year. And remember, the davening doesn't end on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, and Shana Rabbah, We daven every day. The doors are always open. There are times in the year, it's more opportune, more auspicious. So continue to daven, be heartfelt, and recognize the prayers that have been fulfilled because we don't want also to be ungrateful. A question for Rabbi Jacobson. How would you define kavana? Davening with kavana or doing a mitzvah with kavana, for example. When I daven, I say all the words and I mean what I'm saying. When I give tzedakah, I jump up and down afterward because I'm happy I had the opportunity to help someone. When I benched Ulev and Esrug, I said the bracha and had in mind some of the meanings of what the Arba Minim represent, the four species. But when discussing with friends that I daven every day, but don't always see the results, they sometimes reply that maybe I didn't have the proper kavana. So what is the proper kavana? Isn't saying the words and meaning what we are saying enough? Or are we supposed to live like ascetic monks in a cave wearing white robes and spending three hours meditating between each word of davening? Well, let's not go from one extreme to the next. Kavana literally means intention. Intention is a very, very wide spectrum. You mentioned tzedakah. When you give tzedakah, you can give tzedakah neutral with a sour face. The Rambam explains, even though you may have given tzedakah, but with a smiling face, Savior Ponim Yafis is a higher level. You're also bringing a smile to the other person. So kavana is hard to gauge. It's your attitude. It's your feeling. Same thing with davening. You can just say lip service and mean nothing. Mechanical. You can say lip service with pirush hamilas. At least you read and understand the words, which of course is, a, is great. You can go further. You can sing a song to yourself. You can get into the mood and a feeling. Sit in that sad hours on one line. Shem echad. Meditating what echad means. There's no rule. It's all commensurate and proportionate to the individual in your situation, the time you have. But there's no doubt that tefillah really has a very broad spectrum, as I said, a very broad opportunity. You can go from one to the next. You could, if you have more time, spend much more time. There's no question, a prayer. Nisham says, tefillah b'le kavana is like kaguv b'le nisham, like a body without a soul. But soul itself, there's many levels to put soul in. You can do something. Your children want to go take you to, to, to they want you to take them somewhere. So you take them, but you're not really fully there. Or you can be fully there. Same thing with davening. It's about bringing yourself, being present. So kavana means intention, but intention can be many levels of intention. And here's something, I, it's hard for me to give every possible scenario because I don't know everybody's circumstances. But this is where you need a friend, a mashpia, someone you can talk to. And again, do it in a way that's, that you can, not tafasta, marubale tafasta. Don't grab more than, don't bite more than you can chew. 
because then you'll end up, it'll end up regressing, it'll end up backfiring. Choose a prayer every day intent, int, with intention. Moida'ani, thank you for Hashem, thank you. You don't say Hashem. For returning my soul to me. I mean, there's so much there. How much you intend and think? The main thing is being conscientious, being deliberate, being in the moment. Don't say, oh, I'm rushing to something else. Many of us just say the lip service. You know, Hashem hears everything. But imagine if you put, when you go to somebody and you say, I'd like something from you, and they see that you're saying it quickly and then you run off, it's very different than if you see they, spend, you see, they see you spend time, you're heartfelt, sincere, it's coming from, your, <coughs> from a deeper place, you're requesting it with, with feelings. Rest assured, more likely they're going to respond quicker and more completely. Okay. Hello, Rabbi. Regards from Buffalo, New York. I have a question about the prayers. When we pray, are we turning into different spiritual frequencies? Is that the reason certain prayers we stand, others we sit or bow our heads or face different directions as we are using our bodies as antennas or antennae to tune to different spiritual channels related to the sections of prayer we are reciting? The answer is yes, more or less. Prayer is a bridge. We talked before about being a ladder, which is maybe appropriate why we're talking about prayer. Sula mutzvah, a ladder. A ladder is an interface. An interface is not just a static interface. This ladder is also dynamic. And when the intentions you, you put into it, says the malochim climbed and came down, the malochim are created by our intentions. So the intentions you put into it is like channels, like wires. When they're clear and they're built properly, they will channel energy. So they're absolutely different spiritual frequencies. And that is why, indeed, our bodies are meant to be aligned to our neshamas. And together we're climbing that ladder, we're creating these interfaces. So the different physical positions, whether we sit or we stand or we bow, or the different movements, when we say at the end of the Chadaydi we turn around, or the three steps back and, back and forth when we go in the beginning and end of Shemaneserah, all that is, to is meaning to align our bodies to channel these frequencies and channel these energies properly. This is where Chassidus talks about what tefillah is exactly. Even the shaking during davening has significance, as the Zayar explains and different Sfarim explain. So the answer is absolutely yes. Okay, with that we will conclude today. This has been My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 426. We are here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m., I give everyone a bracha. It should be a very gebenched month, blessed month, a month of Geula Pratis, individual personal redemption and global redemption. Personal in the sense of opening up channels, creating alignment, using the tefillah and all the mitzvahs and teira that we're given as bridges between us and God, accessing it, internalizing it, and creating a seamless flow when all will be aligned. Thank you so much, and everyone have a very good week. Be well. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.